uh, we're going to get into the message right now. So if you guys wouldn't mind, grab your Bibles. We're going to take a look at this morning. Uh, we're going to take a break. Actually, if you've been here for the past few months, you know that we've been going through the book of Revelation. We're actually going to take a break from the book of Revelation today, and we're going to look at uh, the Incarnation. Um, which I'll explain to you what that is in just a moment here. It's a big theological term, which we will try to unpack for you guys so that we can understand it more clearly. Um, But basically, in short, it's about Jesus. We want to talk about Jesus. Obviously, this time of year, we celebrate uh, Christmas. We celebrate Christ coming into this world. Um, Yes, obviously, we know Christmas trees are not in the Bible, nor are Christmas lights. But joy is, celebration is, And we love those things which remind us of Jesus. And for a lot of us, especially myself, uh, remembering Christmas trees and things of that nature growing up always pointed me to Jesus, as I just remember growing up in a family where we'd always talk about the Christmas story every single year. In fact, probably the most important thing that points people to Jesus is the Peanuts story where Linus comes out and starts quoting Luke. What a great story, right? So we, we love joy. We love celebrating, and we love those items that point to joy and celebration, and in particular, Jesus. And so today, we're going to basically be looking at Jesus and what it means for Jesus to be coming into this world, what that really symbolizes and talks about. Um, so today, we're going to specific, actually today and next week, we're going to be looking at the incarnation. We're going to be looking at it in, set, in, in essence, three particular ways. We're going to look at the historical background of the incarnation or God coming into this world. We're going to look at also sort of the theological uh, implications of Jesus coming into this world. We'll package that for you in just a moment. And then next week, we're going to basically be looking at the practical implications of what it means for Jesus to be for Jesus to come into this world. Uh, when you read a lot of the New Testament, you read guys like the Apostle Paul, and they're writing these little stories, and they'll say stuff like this. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, which we'll look at in just a moment here, but also we'll be looking at more intensely next week. Paul basically takes this whole chapter, and he points to the incarnation, points to God becoming a man. And he pulls out these amazing uh, just implications for our lives in terms of a practical way to live. So a lot of these early New Testament writers were looking for actions within God, things that God had done in trying to bring these into Christian life or practicality. We'll be looking more at that next week. So what I want for us to do, especially when I talk about the term theology, sometimes people get all freaked out, they get tired, it's like start yawning, theology, right? And what I really want to do for us as a church, there's like three main words that for the most part, Christians really kind of trip out on. One is theology. It's like nap time. For some reason, it like, it's equated to taking a, you know, a sleeping pill. The other one is money. People freak out. It's like money. We don't want to talk about that. The other word that always is sort of this buzzword that people don't like hearing is sin. What I want for us to be as a church is that when we talk about theology, and we get really excited about it, I want for us to be a church that loves theology. Theology just simply means the study of God, or the putting in order uh, an understanding of who God is, or what God is like. I want for us as a church, when the concept of theology gets brought up, that we love that, we're excited about that, we want to talk about that. When we talk about money, that we want to get generous, that to us it's like the idea of money and giving is sort of this excited opportunity to be generous with what we have. And when we talk about sin, we take it seriously. 
that we don't just sort of brush it under the rug and act as if everything's okay, right? We in America, we're really good at just always being okay, right? We're always like, you know, people ask you, how you doing? Okay. Well, you, you just lost your job, right? Yeah. And then how can you be going okay? I mean, you know what I'm saying? We're always really good at just sort of covering things up. And that's kind of, it can be sinful. I mean, people can be going through hardcore, gnarly types of sin, and it's not okay. We want to deal with sin in the right way, that just, we get serious about it. So theologically, we want to get excited. Money, we want to get generous. Sin, we want to, we want to take those types of things serious. But today we're going to be looking at the theological aspects with regard to God coming into this world, all right? If you haven't figured out already, my throat's probably a little bit scratchy. It absolutely hurts. I'm probably going to lose a body on this because I've been shouting earlier already this morning. My message isn't going to be as long, so that's good. It's a bonus for you guys. That's my Christmas gift to you guys. And uh, so anyways, we're going to try to see how far we can go through this. So let's take a look at sort of the historical background of the incarnation. The incarnation, the historical background. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening up to the book of Luke, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read the story of Jesus coming into the world. This is Luke's account. As most of you know, there's four Gospels. Each gospel gives sort of their own rendition or account of the life of Jesus. This happens to be a guy by the name of Luke, his account of Jesus' life. We'll read this, and then I'll pray. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. get there myself. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first register, this was, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothing and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And at the same region or in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away uh, from them into heaven, the shepherds said unto one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened and that the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and a babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child, that all who heard it wondered at, that, at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, she treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen and as it had been told to them, and at eight days, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, they called his name Jesus, the name that was given him by the angel that was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. 
Father, we ask you right now that you would just open our hearts, open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. We want to see you, Lord. We want to see the work that you have done by coming into this world. God, I pray that you would help us if we have not been impacted by that or been affected by that or have our affections of our heart changed to be thankful for that. Then, Lord, I pray that this message right now, as we look at your word, that it would transform the way that we view this, the way that we think about these things. So we just commit this morning in your hands. We pray that you would do the work in our hearts and our lives that you desire to do, all for your glory and for our joy. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to take a look at basically is the historical background with regard to this. And I want to break this down in two main categories. The one is which we can look at the fact that there were these historical activities that had happened. In other words, events, things that happened, actual events that had happened. The second of which we're going to take a look at historical figures. So the first of which are these historical, or in this particular case, one historical activity. In this particular setting, we're, we read about this census that had taken place. That this was an attempt on behalf of the king to go around throughout his entire kingdom to find out how many people live in his kingdom, how many women, how many children, how many men. And uh, really the main purpose behind this was kind of driven by greed in a lot of ways. Um, He knew that the more people that he had in his kingdom, the more he can tax. And the more accurate figure that he had with regard to men, the more he can employ in his army to fight for his particular needs. So this was sort of going on during this particular period of time. We know this even sort of verified outside of biblical scriptures as well. So we know according to guys like Josephus and other uh, historians that weren't even Christians, they basically talk about this particular period of time in which there was a census taken. That's significant because if this was just a story, if this really had no historical context, if there was no weight whatsoever with regard to these events actually taking place or happening, then it would be all the more reason why which we can just write them off and disbelieve them. See what I'm saying? So it's important to understand how these things are sort of couched in history, which brings validity and verification to their truthfulness. So first of all, we see that there were these historical activities where events had taken place. The second thing, we're going to take a look at a couple of historical figures. There's at least four, probably five, at least five that are mentioned here in this text that we had read. The first of which is a guy by the name of Augustus Caesar. Now, he was kind of the great uh, nephew, if you would, of first Caesar, the main guy, the big cheese of that entire Roman Empire. And so he comes along, he sort of is bequeathed the ownership or the rulership of the kingdom, and he's literally kind of the highest guy in order over the entire kingdom at this particular period of time. Um, according to history, we all know that he existed, we, that he was, he's a real guy, he actually lived, and we're told that he actually plays in the story. Uh, he ruled over this Roman Empire, which is the, one of the most prominent, most long-standing empires of all history. And uh, he was, in a lot of ways, prior to him getting to his place of being on the throne, he's kind of ruthless. But once he became kind of enthroned and as the ruler, as an emperor, he was benevolent. He was kind. Um, so he was not a Christian, though, obviously. He kind of worshipped and adopted sort of this mentality of uh, a Roman emperor worship, even though that had not fully developed until later. He basically, no doubt, viewed himself, along with a lot of the other people, kind of viewed him as sort of... Uh, kind of a manifestation of God, or if you would, kind of an incarnation of God. And that's kind of how a lot of people had viewed uh, Caesar. Uh, And then we're also told about this other guy by the name of Quirinius. He plays in the text. We read about him in the story. Think about it this way, all right? The government type of system they had back then is very different than the government in which we live in. But if Augustus 
uh, Caesar Augustus, we read about here, is kind of like the president. Then Quirinius would sort of be like a senator, all right, or some guy that kind of worked uh, representing maybe a state. That's kind of who Quirinius was. But both of these guys worked together for the purpose of basically establishing this census that was going on. Then we also read in the story both Mary and Joseph. Again, historical people. They lived in the region of Judea. Actual real live living people were told about Mary that she was a young gal and that she was essentially um, you know, given in her hand or to marriage to this guy by the name of Joseph. Now the way they operated back then was you would be betrothed. And that was in some ways more or less kind of like a legal marriage, although the marriage had not been consummated as such. And so in this particular setting, they had sort of this agreement between each other that they were going to get married. Sometimes we think about Mary, whatever types of pictures you have in your mind. Most scholars believe that Mary was probably age 13. Joseph could have been anywhere between 15 to 25, maybe even 30. We don't really know. But for the sake of the story, let's just assume that Mary is young. Think teenage girl. Think junior high girl. That's who Mary was. Young girl, petite, not very wealthy, probably did not have any prominence whatsoever, not much of a name other than the fact that she was kind of just living in Judea, sort of more or less as a peasant. All right? Joseph comes along. He is betrothed to her. They're going to get married. He comes to find out that Mary is pregnant. This absolutely throws his world into a tailspin. Because in his mind, he's thinking, you've been unfaithful to me. How could you have done this to me? An angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in the middle of the night, basically, and tells him she hasn't been unfaithful. This is a miracle of God. Just accept it. We want you to marry, marry, and be one, and God will have great, exceeding favor upon you. Joseph was a very, very honest, upright, and really, to be credited, um, just good, godly man. He could have shamed her. He could have pulled away from her. He probably could have even had her stoned to death, but he didn't. He obeyed God. Joseph loved God. And Joseph was also a man that was very in touch with what God wanted to do. Therefore, Joseph took the wife, uh, took the hand of his wife in marriage, and the two of them were going to be one. And so they also played into the story as well. Joseph, we're told he was a carpenter. So in your mind, think a guy that was probably physically fit, um, had maybe muscles that were pretty strong. His hands were probably calloused from swinging in a hammer all day long. He was a typical type of blue-collar guy living in a third-world type of a country in the lowest conditions possible in that particular period of time. God chooses these two people in a lot of ways to sort of be the antithesis of what the original characters are in chapter 2, meaning you go from having extreme riches. You see... uh, you know, Quirinius and Augustus Caesar, these guys that have a lot of money, a lot of affluence, a lot of influence, and that's sort of juxtaposed with, here you got Mary and Joseph that literally have nothing, literally have nothing. They're literally just nobodies in a nobody town, kind of like Santa Margarita. Nobody, it's not even on the map. There's not even a Starbucks there. And these are just people that nobody even cares to even think about But for whatever reason, in God's good kindness and in his grace, chooses these two people, and that's how God saved. That's how God moved. That's how God works. He just, by grace, chooses people. And so here's what we see here playing into the story. God chooses Joseph to be the adoptive father of his son, and God chooses Mary to be the womb, the mother, the woman that's going to carry 
God into this world. And then finally, what we see in the story as well is Jesus. He's born. And what's unique about Jesus, among many other things, of course, is that he is, his birth was announced. So this seemed to be planned. This seemed to be laid out aforetime. Because obviously, it's, it's, you know, it's indicated that an angel, I mean, if an angel wakes you up in the middle of the night, it's like, look, you're going to have a kid in nine months. And you've never been with a man before. It's got to be miraculous. I mean, it's pretty good indication that something's at work that's pretty divine. And so what ends up happening is Jesus' name is also given to him. His name was significant, that his name wasn't Bob or George. It was just Jesus. And Jesus was a very common name, but the name Jesus was significant because literally it's sort of a compound word that meant uh, Jehovah is salvation, God is the Savior. So even the very name, Jesus, Jehovah is salvation, was significant. In a lot of ways, this, was all, well, this for sure was also a fulfillment of a prophecy of Isaiah 9, where it said his name, his title will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So literally, all of these sort of prophetic utterances or foreshadows or echoes of the past were sort of coming to the present with the main purpose and main intention to announce something new that God was doing. This was literally God breaking in on the scene of history. And what was about to take place was in the middle of this census, in the middle of all of these people literally being shuffled around, going back to their hometown so that they can register for their census. And the very fact that there was a massive uh, system of roads that were developed by the Roman Empire, because this was during what was called the Pax Romana, meaning the Peace of Rome. And Rome was very good at setting up all of these, uh, these roads and these types of transit systems all around the entire known world to make things easy. And it was, think about it as if they were to be the guys to set up like the modern day internet system. They were like masterminds at setting up modern means of communication, modern means of travel. And that's the way it had worked. And we're told basically that God, in the book of Galatians, that God at the fullness of time, right when the time was right, God steps into this world. He had set the stage he had said every little detail aright. God had literally reserved for himself uh, this, this, this peasant girl by the name of Mary, this teenage girl that had just loved God. And God also had literally ordained for this guy, Joseph, who's just an upright man who's honest. Joseph could have made the decision and just says, I'm not going to do this. I'm not into this. But Joseph was a man of God. And God had literally set the stage for something massive to happen. And that's sort of the historical background as to what's taking place, as to what's transpiring within this whole story. Mary literally was fulfilling Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, unto you a sign will be given that a virgin will conceive, that Mary, who was a virgin, she'd never been with a man, that she literally would be the one for whom God was going to enter into the world. A young, teenage, insignificant, peasant, Nobody knows who she was, type of a woman. It's that person that God chooses to come to. We have to understand this. This is the beauty of what God does. God doesn't move in circles that are full of affluence. I mean, I realize we live in a culture that is all about money and stature and who you are and the size of your car says something about who you are. I understand. That's the world that we live in. But what I'm trying to say is that's not unique to America or San Luis or California. That's been the whole world all throughout history. 
we've just had different things that we've sort of associated with the ability of having effluence and having a name for ourselves. But God has always sort of circumvented those systems and has gone straight to those that are the most marginalized, those that are the most shunned, those that are just really nobodies within the culture. And God comes into this woman, setting the stage, and I think in a very kind of act of irony to say, I didn't go to Caesar. I didn't even go to Quirinius. I went to some nobody woman, teenage woman, junior high woman, with braces woman, to show myself strong on her behalf just because I'm God. It's amazing how great our God is, just to prove to people that God is God, all right? So that's sort of the historical background. It's important for us to understand that this story is not just sort of isolated. It's not just myth. It's not just a bunch of fables and stories that people sort of made up just to try to make the story sound good and significant and believable. But actually, this happened literally in history, verifiable facts. The second thing that we're going to take a look at, and we're actually going to wrap it up with this, believe it or not, um, we're going to just take a look at the theological aspects of this. You're like, wait a minute, the sermon's almost done. Yes, I told you I was going to give you a Christmas present. It's going to be short today. So here's what we're going to do. I want to look at basically five theological implications of this and try to ask some questions and try to bring some clarification to some of these things. So one of the first questions that I want to ask in terms of a theological background, and again, I mentioned earlier, I want for us to be a church. And when we talk about theology, we actually get excited about it. We're not afraid of it. To be really frank with you, I think one of the problems that's happened in the church, this is, this is a side note, by the way, it's free. And I think what's happened in the church, a lot of people have taken theology and gone to a direction where it's all about just head knowledge. And it doesn't lead to worship. We don't want to be that type of church, nor do we want to be the type of church that views theology as being you know, antiquated or being worthless. Theology really, in short, is just a study of God. Study of God should lead us to worship. If you do your theology right, if you study God right, what it should do, it should lead you to be in awe of him. It should lead you to a place where you are just in awe of him, in worship of him. You stand and you view him as an absolutely almighty, all-powerful God that leads you to a sense of like worship, where you invest worth in who God is. If your theology doesn't lead you to that, if your theology just leads you to a place where you want to argue with people about what you've learned, you didn't get it. You didn't get it. You just got knowledge, and it just sort of added more pride to your arrogance, right? It just added more to it. What we want to do is make sure that we have this, these themes and these concepts in their proper order. So theology is really, we just want to worship God. It's really at the end of the day. So here's some theological implications of this. So the first of which is, did Jesus become God? And what this implies is that maybe Jesus wasn't God. See, a lot of scholars and theologians, especially in the first, second, third centuries, debated this, trying to understand what really happened in Luke 2. What really took place there? What really transpired? Was Jesus just some guy that came into this world lived a really good life, taught a lot of amazing sermons, helped out a lot of marginalized people, and then became God? There's a lot of uh, false beliefs that actually take this particular view, that Jesus, through suffering, that Jesus, through living obediently to God, er, became God, became like God, okay? 
uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will argue, and they'll say that Jesus really wasn't God, but he was a God. Again, they're all sort of uh, deviations from what I think the Bible actually teaches, that Jesus was not man who became God. Jesus was God who became man. Okay? So here's what I want to point out. If the way that you think about Jesus today, if I say the name Jesus, if we do a little word association here going on, and I say, what do you think of when I say Jesus? Like if in your mind you think of this little weak babe in a manger, or if you think of Jesus bloodied and bruised on the cross, to be honest with you, those perspectives, though accurate, are not complete. Okay? They're good, but they're not complete. Jesus is no longer a baby. Jesus is no longer a bruised and bloodied being on a cross. Jesus is back to where he was when he started. You're like, what do you mean? What I mean is this, especially you daddies, I want to say this to you. If you're a dad, you have an opportunity to bring your kids to Jesus this season. Don't miss this season. Don't just sort of pawn it off on mom to take care of all of it. Use this as an opportunity to bring your kids to Christ. Tell them the real story. Let them know that Jesus always existed, always lived, always was in the presence of the Father, and yet he stepped into our world as a human being. Let me give you an example of this. We read the story of Luke's account of what had happened in the incarnation, God coming into this world as in flesh. But John doesn't start at the manger, right? If you ever read John's account, John also wrote a story or an account on Jesus' life called the gospel. If you read John's account, he doesn't start with the manger. He starts with the Trinity. He starts with the Trinity. This is phenomenal. Because John starts his word by saying this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. This word, whoever the word is, the word was God, John says. And then later on in verse 14, John goes on to clarify. And the word became flesh. That phrase, becoming flesh, is where we get the word incarnation, all right? It's actually a Latin word, incarnation, which comes from two words, in, meaning in, like in something, stuffing into something, incarnate, uh, you guys are familiar with this, especially men, carne, uh, sada, yeah, yes, carne, sada, it's meat, right? So literally the word incarnate means in the flesh, It's a Latin term that means in the flesh. God, according to John chapter 1, verse 14, God came into flesh, meaning he always preexisted. He always preexisted. Jesus always was. He didn't just come into being. He always was. Please, please make sure you get that. Make sure you understand that. Because if you don't get that, then the idea of the birth does not bear the weight that it ought to have upon our souls. It will not leave us in awe. It will not lead us to deep, affectionate, loving worship of God. When we understand the fact that Jesus always was God, so you're like, well, what was Jesus like? Let me give you a couple examples of what Jesus was like before he incarnated. You can take a look at Isaiah chapter 6, another great, a great verse. Take a look at Revelation chapter 1. Take a look at Revelation chapter 4. 
all of those verses are gonna play into a picture of what Jesus was like before he came to live on this earth and what Jesus is like after he is living on the earth. The only difference, the only difference before and after is that the after, Jesus is back in glory, back to the place where he was worshiped, just like he was before, in honor, in glory. Only difference is now he's got a body. So something absolutely profound happened during 33 years of Jesus is coming into this world that will always be like that way forever. It's profound. But Isaiah chapter six tells us, Isaiah sees this vision of God. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The trade of his robe, this massive robe, think uh, this massive robe that going behind him. The train of his robe filled the temple and these angels would sing, holy, holy, holy. The way that Hebrew uh, would emphasize something. They didn't have like exclamation marks. You know, when we use an exclamation mark at the end of a word, it means like bold and, you know, they didn't have that. The way that they would exclaim something is they would say it in threes. And here, uh, Isaiah sees this vision of God in glory, and these angels are proclaiming, he's holy, holy, holy. And later on, the gospel, all of the gospel writers basically would agree that that same God that was worshipped as holy, holy, holy is the same God that John identifies in, Revel, in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, and that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, his beauty, in a whole new light, in a whole new way. It's phenomenal. So Jesus did not become God. He was God become man. The second thing is this, did Jesus cease to be God when he, become, when he became a man? So the question is, is almost kind of inverted. So when Jesus came into this world, did he stop becoming God? Answer is no. We'll get into that in just a second. Then what happened, we'll tell that in a second. But no, Jesus did not stop becoming God when he came into this world. He still retained his godness, his essence, but there were certain elements that he laid aside, and we'll look at that in just a second here. Third one is this, is Jesus God or man? And the answer, yes. Yes, he's both. He is the God-man. He is one in the same. Jesus is God and man in human flesh. God come in human form, in the likeness of human flesh. All right, that's important to understand. The fourth thing is this. Why did God come in the flesh? Why did God come in the flesh? What I want to basically say is this, there's at least two reasons why. The first of which is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God came because he loves. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus was a missionary because his father was a missionary God. The issue was this, God created mankind in flesh. We have flesh and blood. We live in bodies. And God created this creation as an outflow of who he is. God is extremely loving, and out of a loving relationship, God created us to join in relationship with him. We read about that in Genesis. In fact, the Bible starts with creation. Preachers need to be careful about this. If you teach Bible studies, make sure that you get this right. If you go out and tell people about Jesus, make sure you get this right. Make sure you start not with sin, but you start with creation. Start where the Bible starts. God created us in his likeness and his image. We've sinned. Then sin came on the scene. Then we pulled away from God. In other words, we pulled away from what we were originally called to enjoy, which was God 
and his good creation. Do you know that? That we were actually called to enjoy this earth, to enjoy this earth, and to enjoy God in the midst of enjoying this earth. The problem is, is that we vowed for loving this planet, we loving this, the things on this earth, loving the things on this earth other than God. And instead, what we've been given is rather than enjoyment of it, we find that this earth fights back. It kicks back. You don't believe me? Walk in your backyard and just see how many weeds are there. And ask yourself, when was the last time you cleaned that up? It just keeps fighting you, all right? Just picture this. Next time you go out there and you're working in your garden, just know there's a battle going on. It's not very aggressive, all right? But trust me, in two weeks, a week after working hard, they'll be back, they're fighting, and they're going to be mocking you. And that's just the way it is. So the reality is God created us for his own good pleasure. We sinned, we pulled away, we preferred other things. And the reality is that oftentimes when people talk about sin, the, 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 the greatest sin, believe it or not, in the eyes of God is not the way oftentimes the evangelical world tries to make it look. It's not homosexuality. It's not divorce. It's not drug usage. All right, the greatest sin is preferring anything over to God, anything. And we do that by, see, for the sinner, we sin by preferring lesser things to God. For the legalist, he sins because he's enamored with himself. But we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we're all on the same equal playing field. And we're all in need, desperate need, of the grace and the mercy of God. And that's what ends up happening. God comes in this world motivated by love. I love what one Puritan said, a guy by the name of Thomas Watson. He's actually one of my new favorites. He says this, God himself, though almighty, was overcome with love. Christ incarnate is nothing but love covered with flesh. Love that. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How? Because Jesus comes in this world. Jesus is love covered in a body. That's what the incarnation is. The second thing that we also see is not only love is why he comes, but the third thing is he comes for sacrifice. Don't miss this. Jesus comes in this world for the purpose of taking our sin away. Let me also read what Thomas Watson said again here. He says, Christ took our flesh upon him that, we, that he might take our sins upon him. And then he describes Martin Luther. Martin Luther actually used to say, he used to describe Jesus in a Latin term, Maximus Precator, which literally means chief of sinners, greatest sinner, ultimate sinner. You're like, Jesus? How's that possible? What Martin Luther meant is that Jesus comes in this world to take upon himself all of the sin of all the world. Even though Jesus never sinned, Jesus was never guilty of any sin, even though he was tempted, like you and I are, he never, ever sinned. That's why Martin Luther would describe Jesus as Maximus Precator, meaning the ultimate sinner. And the reason why, Jesus, why he would say that is because Jesus comes into this world to take on himself a body so that he could die. It's as simple as that. That's his point. It's all motivated by love. It's all motivated with an intent to seek and save those who are lost. That's the point. 
I think it's important for us to see that and to picture that, that when we see Jesus or reminded of Jesus laying in a manger, that we are reminded of something very profound that's all part of this mission, this eternal mission that was started somewhere within the Trinity before time began, that God knew, God foreordained, God planned that all of this was going to transpire, all of it was going to happen. It's all part of a narrative, all part of a story, okay? The last one is this. What did Jesus give up? This to me is the most profound question. What did Jesus give up? Because when we talk about God coming in the flesh, obviously there's certain things that Jesus had given up. And this has kind of been a big question in debate among scholars and theologians and churchgoers for centuries, literally since the beginning in which the church began. People have always kind of wondered, what did Jesus give up? If Jesus is God or if Jesus is a God-man, whatever it is, they would always ask the question, well, what did Jesus give up? Did he give up his divinity? Did he give up his abilities? What did he give up? And really, in short, we know that Jesus didn't give up being God, because we've already tackled that. Jesus was always God. So what did he give up? What you need to understand, again, if this reality is true, which it is, that Jesus preexisted before the manger. That means that Jesus was worshipped throughout all creation. Jesus created angels to give him glory, to give him praise. These were these massive, all-powerful, or pretty powerful, at least all-powerful compared to us, beings. Maybe not all-powerful compared to God. But they are powerful beings that had this ability that worshipped Jesus, that loved Jesus, that gave their... In fact, we're even told in Isaiah chapter 6 that these massive beings called angelic beings, they would actually cover their eyes with their wings so that they would not look upon the face of Jesus. This is how holy Jesus was. This is how profoundly great Jesus was in glory. And so when Jesus was in glory with his Father, he received the rightful praise of worship, the rightful adoration, the rightful dignity, the rightful respect, the rightful worship, the honor, and the glory that was all given to him. And so what Jesus actually gave up was not his divinity, but he gave up his glory. He pulled away from that. He left that. He pulled himself away from the honor to come into a world to be dishonored. He gave up his glory to come into a world to live for nine months in the womb of a peasant girl, to be born not in a kingdom with a crown placed upon his head, not even to be recognized really by any type of dignitary, but just simply to come into the most humblest format. That's what Jesus gave up. He laid aside all of this to come into this world for a particular purpose. It's absolutely beautiful. Here's what Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 says. In fact, why don't you guys turn there real quick and we'll read this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4. Wrap it up with this. He says, let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also in the interest of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking upon himself the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So the point that needs to be understood is this. 
is that Jesus literally comes into our world laying aside this glory, laying aside this honor to become humbled. You guys, try to conceive of that. Try to imagine somebody who has the most profound value, profound worth, profound superstar status on this planet. Think of somebody. I mean, it's hard for us to even imagine somebody so great, so mighty, so powerful, so infinitely worthy of honor and respect on this planet to actually come and just hang out in the ghettos of New York City or Los Angeles. Just kind of kick back and hang out, have meals, to mow their lawn, to come and just serve and ultimately be killed. To some degree, to some very small degree, that captures a very slight essence of what God did. That God left the rightful honor, the rightful place of glory, the rightful place of dignity, value, and respect to enter into our world to become a servant, one who is lesser than a servant, so that in turn, you and I could receive glory. Do you understand that? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. The only reason that Paul was able to continue to push forward in his ministry in spite of great suffering, because he had this hope of glory. The hope of glory was absolutely, completely secured because his God of glory laid aside that glory to come into this world as a servant to save a guy like Paul to bring to glory and to bring you to glory. Do you know that we live in this world that's broken? And if you look at sort of the basic form of all of us, we are people that recognize we want dignity. We want value. We want respect. We want glory. The only problem is, is we don't know where to find it. We all have different solutions as to how to get there. Again, this is why I said earlier, this is why some people think dignity, value, respect, glory are found in the type of job that you have, or the type of car that you have, or how big a television you have hanging in your center of your you know, living room, or how many goods you have, or how many investments you have, or how many girlfriends you have, or how many boyfriends. Or, you know, we, can, we always have sort of this differing type of list as to what it looks like to be given or vested dignity, value, and respect. Do you know that the heart of the gospel is that Jesus comes and says, I will give you my dignity, my value, my respect, completely summarized by my glory. I will give you my glory. It's found in me. The very thing that humanity is longing for and looking for is found in Christ, who laid aside his glory, took upon flesh and blood, placed himself in the womb of a teenage girl and was born in a manger. God gave his greatest gift as an act of love and sacrifice. I hope you today feel and sense and understand the love of God, the length to which God would go to save us. That's how great God is. That's how great Christmas is. That's how great it is to celebrate God come into flesh. We're going to respond. We're going to worship. We're going to sing songs to Christ, to worship him, to love him. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. We give generously because God's a very generous giver himself. We want to give back to God. 
This is a way for you. If you're, not, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're not, you're not part of this fellowship, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is an opportunity for you to give joyfully. If you are, if you love this church, if you love what's happening here, you want to give back, it's a great way. We're also going to respond by partaking of communion. We have communion in the back over there and over there, and we'd encourage you guys to partake of the communion. In fact, I want to say other thing. If you're here and you're a husband, guys, listen, this is an amazing opportunity. If you got kids here, it's an amazing opportunity for you to take your wife, to be the priest of the home, to bring your wife, to bring your kids to a place and lead them through what the communion is representative of. This is an opportunity for you to be like a priest, to show God to them, to show them what the bread represents, that it was the body of Christ come into this world. It represents that, that the drink that we dip the bread into reminds us of the fact that this Jesus who came into this world, came into this world to die, to shed his blood for us, that we would partake of that and remember what Christ did for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus, I hope you come to know him. I hope you trust him today. I hope that you would see that he's come to seek and save that which is lost. I urge you, I encourage you, just trust in Jesus. Just confess your sin to him. Ask him to wash you. He'll forgive you. Because the reality is this. Jesus came once. It's like Jesus the trailer. It's like the beginning of things to come. I mean, that's what like part one is. It's like 1.0. 2.0 is yet to come. I mean, what we saw was a commercial. And it was glorious. That means that what's going to come, the whole substance of it, will absolutely blow our minds throughout all eternity. I hope you know the great love of God that was revealed through the cross by him sending his son to take care of all of our offense before God. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to give. Take communion. Some of us are going to repent, ask God to forgive us and wash us from our sin and be made right with God. I want all of us to have a Merry Christmas this year as we consider how great our God is. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for coming. Thank you for laying aside your glory, your value, your dignity, the respect that you so rightly deserve. Thank you that you're willing to lay that aside, to count it as something not to be grasped, that you can just lay it aside for a season, only to take it up with even greater potency. That you now, Lord Jesus, in glory, are even more glorified. That one day when we see you and we see that our Savior has a body, a physical body, one that actually even bears the scars and the marks that we inflicted upon you. Our hearts will be filled with worship and love and awe. So God, I pray right now that you would capture our hearts again, even afresh right now, that we would love you, that we would worship you, that you would raise the affections of our hearts, Godward, that we can sing to you, that these wouldn't just be words on a page or words out of our mouth, but Lord, but an engagement, an interaction of our heart with you. We love you, God. We thank you for your son.